I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's what I want to do next time. Write a book about being fully human and with good people in it. So I've just said it, that's my franchise. <laughs> a, I mean, that's a pretty good franchise to be in. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today on a gray, rainy day here in Pittsburgh. It is rough getting out of bed in this weather, but it is fantastic. Uh, I would rather be hiking, to be quite honest. This kind of weather makes me want to be out in the woods. I hope you're doing well today, and I hope you are ready, because we have a great program. Katie Hafner is here. Her book, The Boys, is out right now. It's her first novel, and I'm super excited for Katie for two reasons, both personal. The first, so she's, if you don't know Katie, uh, she's a journalist and author, uh, written for the New York Times, used to write for this section called Circuits way back, you know, 20-something years ago, which was one of the big technology sections in that paper, uh, writes for the Washington Post. She's written six nonfiction books. One of those books, Where Wizards Stay Up Late, The Origins of the Internet, which she wrote with Matthew Lyon, is one of those books that shaped my career. And she's a writer that shaped my career. Uh, one of the things I tell people, um, when you start writing, when, you, when you're early in your career, you have to be really careful, whether you're nonfiction, fiction. Like if you write something and become successful at it, you get this thing called a platform, right? You get an audience of people that are expecting you to do this kind of stuff. So when I started my career, I was a 
I was working as a feature writer at weekly newspapers. I'd written for zines and things like that. But like, really, I was fancied myself as a, as a, as a feature writer. And eventually I wanted to do, you know, creative nonfiction books. And I ended up in this technology space just because I understood technology. I'd been, you know, on the internet since 1984 as a kid, like all this stuff. And I never really wanted to write about technology because it seemed very boring, right? Like I loved doing it, but I was like, what stories can you tell? And then I come across several writers, Katie being one of them, who wrote these beautiful stories about people. And yes, technology was the sort of thing that these people were doing, but they were these gorgeous pieces that just put you in this time and place and helped you understand how the world became the way the world is today. And that just struck a chord with me, right? Like, and it was one of those things where I realized, oh, this technology isn't the story. Right. It's always people that are the story and what it is they're doing is sort of the MacGuffin to that, because what you're trying to do is understand who they are and why they do what they do. The technology was just a tool into which they did that. And so. When I her publicist uh, sent the note and said, you know, I don't know if you know who Katie is, blah, blah, blah. Like immediately I fanboyed and was like, well, here's nine paragraphs about why I want her on the show immediately. The other reason is when I went to Berkeley years later for graduate school, she was teaching there. Um, it was like a guest thing. I think she was there for a year. She taught you know a class here or there. I immediately signed up for the class. Even though I was working at Wired full-time at that point, taking graduate school at night, and she was teaching uh, about technology writing. I didn't care. Like I wanted to be in the class where she was teaching. So... I'm super excited to have her on the program. Um, the, the Boys is her first novel. It's the other reason I'm excited, right? So she's done nonfiction journalist stuff her whole life, and this is sort of branching out and trying something new. And it has been phenomenally reviewed, which is not shocking to me because she is a fantastic writer. She also does some uh, podcasts, Lost Women of Science and Our Mothers Ourselves. Uh, she hosts and produces those. And she still lives out in San Francisco with her husband and her dog. We're going to actually talk about almost everything that I just said in this intro. <laughs> so some of it's going to be a little nostalgia on my part, but uh, a lot of it for me is it was really nice 20 years, 21 years after I met her, longer um, since I read the book, Where Wizards Stay Up Late, to actually sit down as a writer and as a not a peer, but as like, you know, now we're two adults who have made writing their career. And to chat with her about life, writing, all of that kind of stuff, like writing novels. It was really something that I cherish. And I think you're going to enjoy the show. She's fantastic. And she's really smart. And um, you can even hear, like, journalists are always going to be journalists. Uh, there are times that she's like, well, hang on, you t I got some questions for you. So that was also delightful. So all that is to say, uh, it's a fun show. Um, you're going to get a little bit more of me than normal, um, but it's all through the lens of Katie, who's fantastic. Before we get you to that, as you know, we got some business. Our shows come out on Wednesday. Wherever you listen to podcasts right now, subscribe. You won't miss any of the stuff that we do. We have the jam, which is this show, and we have the Q&A after party, and we have the jam sessions nonfiction show. You can support the entire Solid Listen podcast network. 
by heading over to the Writer's Jam, our website. You can click on the Patreon button, just a couple bucks a month. You get commercial-free episodes, all kind of bonus content. Malls and Nicole are always putting stuff out. We got 12 other programs on the network. And don't forget, two things you can do to help us out. Tell your friends about us and leave us a review either at Apple Podcasts or over at our Facebook page, The Writer's Jam. Thanks for coming and spending an hour with us on our ridiculous little program in the corner of the internet. And now, sit back and enjoy my conversation with the amazing and wonderful Katie Hafner. I live in um, San Francisco, but I spend summers in New Hampshire. Nice. And you look like you're in New York. I'm in Pittsburgh. Oh, Pittsburgh. Oh, even better. I love Pittsburgh. Yeah. I love it. So where are you originally from? So I'm originally, I was born, oh my gosh, this is why I write only about nice people, because my life as a child was populated by very dodgy figures. I was um, born in Rochester, New York, uh, the child of scientists, and my father was a physicist. And my mother, poor thing, this was in the 60s. Women were meant to stay home. She was brilliant. She was a physicist as well. Oh, wow. Very frustrated. She had dropped out of Radcliffe, which was to marry my, to elope with my father. And um, anyway, she was desperately unhappy and ended up yanking us out of Rochester in the middle. I went to three different first grades, took us to Florida. We lived in Florida for a couple of years. Then she just didn't like Florida, took us to California, moved to San Diego. And she started at the Graduate School of Mathematics at this new campus, UC San Diego, brand new. Oh, wow. In the 60s. And I was, you know, she's remained brilliant, but troubled and adrift. And so when I was 10, my sister and I were taken away from her and sent back to the East Coast, thrown into this blended family that was a nightmare, a nightmare, and um, moved to Amherst, Massachusetts, where my father and my my late husband's father started Hampshire College. Oh, wow. Um, and, um, uh, and so then, you know, it just, you know, that with a childhood, and they were, and my stepmother was, there, there was, it was like classic step sure. and stuff. It was five kids. They ended up throwing my 15 year old sister out of the house. She went to live in a fraternity at Amherst College. The whole thing was such a mess. And I had to sneak out to visit her and take her food. It was awful. That's, so, were you guys close? Like, what were you before? Oh, we, were sister, you guys close? My sister and I. Oh yeah, yeah. Just so close. But she was damaged so early on. Sure. And she so became what, a very bad alcoholic, and then she died very suddenly about um, I don't know, 15, ten years ago. Oh wow. Uh, Twelve years ago. Yeah. What were you like as a kid? Like that had to be. Were you? Well, you know, dealing with that, were you like introverted or like did you guys just kind of keep to yourself? Uh, Sarah, my sister, she was two years older, so she really, I mean, she threw herself under the bus for me, um, in many ways. Uh, she really raised me, 
I mean, yeah, we'd eat, you know, Hershey bars for dinner, and that was pretty. That was pretty great, and <laughs> baby roots, <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, and milkshakes for breakfast. It was great. <laughs> that was the good part, and um, and but she just really never recovered from it, sure. and I, you know, I just survived. I stayed very much out of trouble. Yeah. I learned to ingratiate myself with people very early on. I stayed very observant, which I think is what turned me into a reporter. Yeah. I am hugely emotionally aware, psychologically aware of what people, you know, how people are feeling. Because you have to, when the adults in your life are so, yeah, uh, what's the word, volatile, you have to learn to read the moods. Yeah. We talk That's, about trauma on this show a lot, like trauma yeah. in all of its forms. And yeah. one of the things, the themes, I've interviewed hundreds of writers, is two things you just said, which is you sort of stay on the outside, right? Like there's something that happens in your life that makes you be very observant. And then you also become very aware of the sort of emotional things that are happening, sometimes because you have to, sometimes because you're interested, but like in trauma, that's what you're taught to do, right? Like your life doesn't matter. You just are trying to navigate the waters of that chaos. Yes, it's true. And so then you carry that forward, yeah. never knowing when the other shoe is going to drop. Yeah. And oh, yeah. The people you love who are now in your life are going to abandon you just because you said yeah. something wrong or it's yeah so yeah. anyway um i started trauma therapy like six years ago like this is a theme that has come up so much on this show it's really interesting that writers and again it's not that you have to be have trauma to be an artist or whatever but some of those tools that are super unhealthy in your life that like made your life a certain way also allow you i think an ability to have an empathy beyond like a deep empathy for things around you once if you can get healthy have you found mm -hmm. that as you've mm -hmm. gotten older mm -hmm. yeah yeah i have and but i'm also you know brad i'm also i wouldn't say i'm in the get over it category of people yeah. but i kind of am it's yeah. like there's only so much, and I say this in my memoir about mother, um, there's only so much mother blaming, parent blaming we can do. I mean, yeah. there has to be a point where yeah. it's like, wait a minute, life is a series of choices. Life is a series of decisions. At some point, I made these bad decisions yeah. because I did, and I can't, I yeah. can't. My therapist always says there's trauma that was given to you. And then there's trauma that you made after by making choices. Well, and also you <laughs> I think the big problem is that you tend to repeat the, you repeat yeah. the situation. It's the weirdest thing. So I ended, I was in this horrible blended family after Matt, my late husband died. We grew up together. We were together as kids. He died very suddenly when he was 45. Yeah. Um, and I stupidly, I did this exact same thing. I married, I remarried too quickly. He had two kids. They hated me. It was awful. My daughter to this day doesn't forgive me. And I say to her, sweetie, if you never forgive me, it will be too soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
she, you know, it's you, we do this and then you have to just put the brakes on. Yeah. That is why my fictional characters <laughs> in this book are at their core, really good people. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes sense, right? Like I've does. talked, I've talked to people that have written memoirs and like, I always tell folks, and you know this, having written one, like a memoir is a fictionalized version of you as you carve right. out certain parts of it that you want to tell a story about. So exactly. it's not therapy. It's not whatever. But the people that have told me they've written them have said it allows me to reclaim a story that I didn't have control over when it was happening. And, mm -hmm. and when I when I write the memoir, it's not therapy, but I can control the story. And I feel like a little bit like that happens with fiction as well. Like, oh what would happen if everybody was just at their core good well it's interesting it's interesting that you say that on a couple of levels one is that i just finished writing an essay for the washington post about what it's like to transition from nonfiction to fiction i don't know how you do it yeah super interesting we can talk about that but also when i wrote this book about good people i i got this uh, i don't know how many writers do this but the the manuscript of the boys got rejected by a bunch of publishers and that's like par for the course right yeah and one of the rejections was the nicest note to my agent and I wrote this guy a thank you note and I said I said thank you you really got that he really got the book and really wanted the book he was with Holt and and he couldn't convince the rest of his editorial team to buy it now that he's seen the review in the New York Times <laughs> <laughs> regretting their decision. anyway so um so he wrote back to me and he said oh gosh it's so nice of you to write and he said you know because I had told him that I set out to write a book about that was populated with good people and he said you know the old writing adage is that um that goodness writes white meaning invisible but meaning bland um, oh, but yeah. he said, but you managed to do it in a way that never flags. And I thought that was such a nice thing for him to say. And it's already got me thinking about my next book because the reactions I've been getting from the boys are all about the heart in it. Like it has so many people it's just it's just somehow open their hearts and i didn't it's this is not like a romance not this is not right yeah you know? <laughs> well i think it's a, i mean we talk like i think it's a time and place i mean some of it i think comes from trump like just experiencing that horror for four years and some uh -huh. of it i think then the pandemic and being locked away from people that you love and people that you hate like all that stuff and the discussion about like the talk, you know, what is toxic masculinity and like, how does that in shape the culture? Like, I feel like we're sort of in this place where we're like, good doesn't mean weak, right? Mm -hmm. Like hard things happen in good. It's just, if you're good, you're trying to get through it in a different way than just putting your head down and not worried about anybody else and plowing through. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I, the whole culture is not that way. But mm -hmm. I feel like that's discussions that are happening in large parts of this culture today. Mm -hmm. I don't I, know if that's true. I I think that's I think that's right. I really do. I think that's a really, really, really good point. It, good is hard. 
good as way harder than mean. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think so. I think so because mean can get cartoonish, which, which is a nice segue to this question of switching from nonfiction to fiction. Because have you interviewed many um, writers who made that switch from journalism to? And I'm, and I'm always shocked because I cannot do it. Oh, you can't. Have you tried? Oh God, yeah, it's awful. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible. I'm, it's, Wait, I, but tell me, tell me what was bad about it. Like, what problems I'm, you encountered? I'm better at this. I've written a few short scripts. I'm better at that mm -hmm. because I think scene i think scenes i think this happened this happened this happened this happened and it all sort of makes sense to me and when i try to write fiction and create stuff create worlds and create things i just start writing all of the stuff it's like a sketch of notes that you would use to write a piece of fiction like mm -hmm. i do world building i don't know how to like carve out the stuff and go well what do you need to know and what don't you need to know to make this thing oh happen i know it's all about the choices it's all about what <laughs> propels the story forward i know i gotta send you the washington peace post piece about this and about how it is why it's so dangerous and perilous for journalists to turn to fiction because <laughs> it's both liberating but it's paralyzing right? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the you can do anything you want. Like, oh yeah. shit. Oh and shit. That's a problem. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. And it's I also I'm much better at because again, I was trained as a child for my own, you know, traumatic whatever. I'm very good at seeing what you're doing and, and understanding why you're doing it and being interested in why you're doing it and then crafting a story around that because that's mm -hmm. literally what I did my whole life. Mm -hmm. If you say, Brad, come up with your own thing, this is part of my therapy. Well, I've never asked myself what that is. And so it's very hard for me to figure out what's the story that I want to tell. Right. Right. You know, and that's the choices part of writing. <laughs> I think a lot, I think a lot of journalists do these kind of thrillers. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Like, it's like, is that really the story you want to tell? Yeah. But it's, uh, I interviewed the guy who wrote The Jerk, Michael Elias, and he's a, uh -huh. he's a he wrote for Steve Martin. He wrote Young Doctors in Love. All mm -hmm. I mean, he's comedian, like did all this stuff. And he wrote his first book and it was a procedural. It was the best book I've ever read. And mm -hmm. he was like, really? yeah, he was like, Brad, comedy and film all have constraints. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like once I understood the structure, I was just writing into these constraints. Yes. Wait, what's the book called? I have to. Uh, it. It's called You Can Go Home Now. Uh -huh. And it's a female protagonist. Like most of the main characters are women. Like it's really, really yeah. And it's kind of gritty, but it's just really, it's one of those page turners. And you're like, oh my God, this really is a, this is a really interesting book. Oh, uh, I have to look this up. Uh -huh. But it was interesting because I'm like, well, you would think as a journalist, we'd be good at choices, right? Because you wrote in newspapers, I wrote in magazines, but like newspapers have a structure, right? Like there's a, this is sort of how you write these things. But that doesn't oh, seem to transfer to fiction. Wait, I just Googled it and it took me to Google Maps and showed me <laughs> the route home. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I'll send you the book after the show. No, I got it. I got it. So um that's so let great. me ask, let me ask. Yeah. So when you're so you sort of get settled 
um not settled but like you you you're 15 or whatever like when you're going to high school when you're thinking about college like what are you thinking about or are you just like i need to get out of here and i'm never ever coming back well i needed to get out of there which was really dumb so i graduated from high school when i was 16 stupidly I did it in three years. I had no idea what I wanted to No, None of the adults in my life gave a good, good. You can say it. Gave a shit. <laughs> I mean, they were so wrapped up. My father who had started a college had not saved a penny for his girls college. Yeah. And um, so I desperately wanted to go to Dartmouth. It was like all I wanted to do. And there was absolutely no money. And so I went to UCSD and um, and it turned out fine. Yeah. I got to do an exchange year at Dartmouth. I um, I fell in with some radical Marxists. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, truly of the old school yeah. German Marxism, the Frankfurt School. And I fell in love with German literature and I studied it. Um, and my main passion was Kafka. And um, and that really just has, Brad, that just gave me the sensibility I have today when I read even slightly quirky fiction. Like when I read George Saunders, I feel like I get it. <laughs> you know, his leaps of the imagination are not that far removed from what he might have observed. Um, and that is, I spent an entire semester studying, studying Kafka's leap into the imagination from his observations. And um, so that set me up pretty well, even was, though- Was mm -hmm. that the moment, was that the time that you started to feel, because again, we talk a lot on this show about like finding a home, finding your place, finding your, I think as a writer, you have to find your spot in the world before you can start writing. Was that the first time you felt like footing was maybe underneath you? It's funny because Kafka writes a lot about footing and having no footing and losing his footing. <laughs> um, I, uh, um, no, I mean, I became, I became a journalist uh, because I wandered into the office of the campus newspaper one day. I must have told you guys this in class. And who, I know who knows what I said, but um, <laughs> I was also in awe. So I was probably oh, just like listening. <laughs> oh, that's great. So I go into the, I just, I don't know why I, I think because I had fallen in with these Marxists and I was very radical. I mean, very radical. My teacher, my German literature teacher, who was a genius, he was a German, a fly would fly through the room and he'd swat at it and say, fascist fly <laughs> fascist fly so to this day i see a fly and i say fascist fly anyway so i wander into the campus newspaper office and uh i swear to god i saw what they were doing and my pulse actually quickened i thought really? i want to do this and um and i never looked back I just, you know, then I went to journalism school. And... But that's what I mean. Was that the first time that you, like, when that happened, when you're away from sort of the chaos of your life, when you saw that? And did you yes. think like, oh, yeah. this is a, this is a way. This is, I'm doing this yeah. path and I'm getting out of this other Yeah. Path. And I think my, 
wonderful suffering sister just never was able to quite yeah. do that. And I, I think it's because I was more selfish than she was. I was more into self-preservation than she knew how to be. And, um, well, you're like me, you're the youngest, right? Like the youngest is taken youngest care thing? of. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think so. Right. Like everybody always, I mean, not everybody, but like as the youngest, like the older people are taking care of you. And so you yeah. feel like I should like, this is what I'm supposed to do because they're doing that for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they yeah. don't because I have two older sisters. Like they don't because their job is to protect the younger one from yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I'm she resented that at the end. I mean, we were estranged for a long time because she was just angry and very unhappy. And I am un I'm not unfamiliar with this story. <laughs> really? Oh, so other people have this too. Um and they don't, you know, it's 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 funny, and I don't talk a whole lot about this on the show, but I, I have always said, like, they love me. I don't always know that they like me, right? They love me because we're family, but there's that like thing because they're like, why did you get this thing and I didn't get it? I know. And same, Sarah, same with Sarah. She said to my mother once, you know, Katie looks good on paper. I think, first of all, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of true. Yeah. I mean, it's just, she's just was so smart and so funny. Yeah such a mess so we're gonna i'm gonna take a quick break because now we're now we're getting into the writing part of this we're gonna throw in a few commercials and we're gonna come back and we're gonna get on the writing journey uh and talk through that so we'll be back in just a second are you ready to shop rakuten's big give week is back get 15 percent back at hundreds of stores and it's all happening this week may 6th to may 13th it's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. All right, so as always, uh, we had a fascinating conversation that none of you guys will ever hear. Um, so you find this journalism thing and what I knew you as was a technology writer like that was or somebody that's not a technology, but somebody that was writing about this sort of emerging world of the Internet and what would become the Web and all of this stuff. So when you're starting out, when you're doing that journalism in college and sort of write out, what do you what what was the draw for you? What did you want to be writing about? Well, as I said, I had become a pretty radical. Kind of. Not kind of a pseudo Marxist. I mean, I didn't know 
you know, I, I, you know, I went to Moscow once and this was in the eighties and it's like, where's my cappuccino? You know, this, <laughs> I would never have made it in the gulag. So, um, uh, so, but I did want to change the world. I did want to have an effect. It was the era of Woodward Bernstein. It was incredibly inspiring. And so that's why I then went to journalism school to keep doing that to write stuff that mattered. Um, and then weirdly, I went to work at Business Week, which is like the opposite of that, where all you're doing is lining, you know, Steve Jobs' pockets. <laughs> like, what's that about? And my best friend on my 30th birthday sent me a postcard in German that said, the German is, as Katie Hafner eines Morgens aus unruhigen Träumen erwachte, fand sie sich in ihrem Bett zu einem Ungeheuren business business week writer verwandelt. And what it means is it's the first line of Kafka's metamorphosis, which is as Katie Hafner awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, she found her, she found herself in her bed, transformed into a business week writer. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the best? It is. I still have it. And so I'm like, okay, okay, gotta make a change. So then I quit Business Week. And How long were you there? Oh, gosh, I don't know, three, four long, two long years. I had been at the San Diego Union. I mean, I had done my journalism stuff. Yeah. And um, and then... Uh, so It's I, weird, I, isn't it? Like, you hit that point when you're writing and you sort of look... I think for... Because business was like... It's like a weekly magazine, right? Like, it was a weekly business magazine. Yeah, and they did hard-hitting stuff. But yeah. So, well, I never got to do those hard-hitting stories or I tried to and then I remember doing one cover story about Steve Jobs and I thought it was just like total pandering total suck up Valentine and he was furious and he called the editor he said Katie's done it to me again and I'm thinking oh great what did I do I don't think I did anything and so yeah. the editor calls me and he says Steve's very upset I'm like great yeah. <laughs> So anyway, um, but you do that for, I think it's like, I was at wired for like four years and it was like the three year mark. There was just a thing that hit me. And I was like, this is not, yeah, this is a job. Yeah. Like I thought I was going to love yeah. this and it's really just not what I want to yeah. write. Well then I know. And then I couldn't quite get out of it. I, then I went yeah. to Newsweek and then I went to, well, I wrote a book about computer hackers and I found Brad that what I really, really loved to do was write about people. Yeah. And because I'm so good at reading them because of this whole thing, the whole trauma thing and yeah. reading like the adults in the room, like figuring out who's Are you gonna... talking about where wizards stay up late? No, I'm talking about a book called Cyberpunk, which John, oh. John Markoff and I wrote together about computer hackers. And yeah. it was very, very early on. Yeah. Bruce Sterling called it the best book ever written about the computer underground. It was the only book ever yeah. On the computer, uh, but I mean, for us from Bruce, that's high. I lived in Austin, man. Like I'm part of South yeah. by Southwest. That's high praise from like. Oh, you lived in Austin, so oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so my daughter was born in Austin. I was living in Austin. So I've been like back in the old days. I was at yeah. his house when he used to do the end of the. Th I've been going to South we by must, since. We we must have jumped bumped into each other because Bruce. We would go to Bruce's house too. That beautiful craftsman. Yeah, yeah. I've been to every interactive but two. Interesting. Back when it was, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like when I tell you when you showed up, I was very excited. Like it's not bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I go to Newsweek. 
they recruited. Then I wrote Matt, my late husband, and I wrote um, Wizards, which is all about the people. I mean, yeah. it's all about, um, you know, the the people. Unfortunately, men. I mean, not unfortunately, but. Right, right less of a diverse community than we would have wanted it was one of the it was the thing that really convinced me that writing about because i like i love technology but that was the book like that and sterling's book were like oh these are books about like these people are really interesting and they're not like heroes of the they're just like regular people trying to find a thing that makes them they're looking for a community of people yeah yeah, exactly. And also just the technical challenges they were facing. Yeah. I'm reading a book right now about the women, the six programmers of the ENIAC. And um, same thing. They were just trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, uh, so I then got recruited from Newsweek. And Newsweek was really not my jam. Oh, my God. I mean, the writing... Oh God, so breezy and like what? Yeah. Anyway, forget that. And so luckily I got a call from the Times and they were starting circuits. And they hired me as one of their first hires onto the staff of the circuit section. And I loved, oh my gosh, I loved it because it was this intersection. I'm sure when I met you, it was like I was just giddy with it. It was this yeah. intersection of humanity and society and technology. Like yeah. I wrote first stories about love over email which was so new at the time and being tethered to our phones like like that was brand new um and kids addicted to the screen completely new so do you feel like because we have a zoom of people that worked at wired that we all sort of talk about that time and you were obviously there like sort of right before us where we're like, it's really hard to explain to people what that time was like writing about Silicon Valley and everything that as the world transformed, you know, and like everywhere you went, you're like, oh, that 27 year old kid ends up developing, you know, I knew Travis Kalanick yeah. when he was in college. And I'm yeah. like, I saw him go from a college kid to like the most hated man in technology. <laughs> and like, how do you sort of explain knowing a 19 year old who's now 40 yeah. And like watching that, like, do you have, do you have those moments where you sort of look back and you're like, nobody understands this? Yeah. And partly because I couldn't own stock, which was because <laughs> the time, you know, you yeah. cannot. So when Google started, right. I mean, and, and, um, I was at wired when it was, we watched the IPO and it's just like, ah, this was before, long before the IPO. Larry Page comes. I, I don't. Oh. You were not in the class. I was teaching it. I think with Jim Fallows at the time. Larry mm. Page just comes. It's just twelve of us in the class, and he's just sitting there. And I knew this thing was like, and but enough. And then when I can't do a thing as a journalist, cannot do a thing. It's so that's I like to I like to joke about it that. Oh man, oh man. And the, and like when Amazon started and Wizards was number two on Amazon in 1996. And I called my editor at Simon and Schuster. I said, My book, the book, the book, our book is number two on Amazon. And he said, Not only did he say, What's that? But then he said, Well, I guess some people might do that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, so then, so at the Times, the Times was great when I was at Circuits. It was an absolutely great time to be there. 
um, writing. I had, a, I had a friend who was a designer there. I don't know if you know Chris Goodfellow. Oh, I think that sounds so familiar. I mean, she was a designer and she did circuits in the Monday business section. Uh, We've been with family friends forever, but like she was the one that turned me on to circuits. She was a friend of Peskovitz and she was like, hey, you I think you might be interested in this stuff. Yeah, interesting. (laughs) So how long did you so you were doing that and like did you think that was the job? Did you think like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do this forever? Then they I loved it, but then they shut circuits down. Because I had predicted this at a retreat that Bill Keller was at. Um, when circuit started, I said, if we do our job right, we will be obsolete in five years because technology will be covered all over this. Everywhere, place. yeah. And um, so yeah. then I got absorbed into the business section. And again, it was just, and the business editor had it out for me, which was unfortunate. And um, really, really disliked me because I'm slow. I'm a very slow reporter. and um, You're thoughtful. You're not slow. He did not appreciate that. And yeah. But there's a difference between those two. <laughs> yes, but he didn't like it because my yeah. productivity was low. Sure. And um, <laughs> so he didn't like it. He went after me and got me laid off, which was horrible I thought at the time I thought I would never recover I remember when I got the news I pulled over my um my mother-in-law Matt's mom was in Austin I called them and I was sobbing and I don't even remember but apparently I was saying on the phone they're gonna take Zoe away from me there because I was a single mom at that point oh my husband and I they're going to take her away from me. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, what if I can't support her? It was horrible, Brad. It was yeah. a horrible time. But as my now husband says, it is absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me because I wrote, I now, I still write for the times. I write exactly what I want to write. I ended <laughs> up doing a ton of healthcare reporting exactly and spent a year doing an investigative piece on Medicare fraud. I mean, so much fun and yeah. i i'm wherever i want to be and they, they can't fire me <laughs> and, but and, that's some of that like generational trauma right like that yeah. happens and like you go back to like yeah, i can't I have this be in my adult life i yeah. thought i got out of that yeah i know so then i re- and now i'm married to the most wonderful man who i mean he doesn't read books uh he's very busy he's a physician um and he's very well known and he um he turned into dr covid during covid so he's like one of those people who everyone turns to um and he basically when this fiction so i then i wrote you know the book about flame gold's piano and i wrote the memoir and then i had no intention of writing fiction and this story just fell into my lap and my daughter turned to me and she said that is a novel I just overheard somebody say something about something and she did too she was there and she said mom this is a novel and I said okay okay and I wrote it yeah and, um it I thought it would be a lot easier you're making stuff up right you don't have to yeah Yeah. it was in many ways harder yeah and took just as long as i've written uh, six nonfiction books 
and it took just as long as any nonfiction I've ever written. I think I I don't know if this is true, but this is just anecdotal again from interviewing lots and lots, and just all, most of my friends are writers. They're either writers or baseball players. Uh, that I think nonfiction people are like, well, I do this and this is really hard. Like this fiction stuff's going to be easy. Like there's always right. that initial like, oh, I can do that. Yeah. Whereas I don't know if fiction people are like, oh, I can go. Like, I don't know if they look at nonfiction and think that's easy, but like every fiction, nonfiction writer I know has had that arc of like, yeah. surely I can do this. And then you're like, uh-oh. Yeah. And then, so then, you know, the critics get it. And I was so scared of what the New York Times was going to do. I knew it had been assigned. And I'm like, oh no, because they've never been nice. They're, they're just mean. They can be very mean yeah. and um, really rip a book apart. And I could not, I was sitting, I have a podcast, Lost yep. Women of Science, um, which has turned into a very big deal. And we just got a huge, wonderful grant from the Sloan Foundation and um, oh, wow. for a nonprofit. Yeah, it's big. It's That's big. great. It's, yeah, it's really great. And so I'm sitting in my closet um, recording one of the episodes and I get this email <laughs> from my husband saying have you checked your email because or it was a text he said have you checked your email because if you do i think you're going to be very happy <laughs> and it was this rave review shouldn't we have like a reading from the review <laughs> <laughs> it was on but there was not one negative word in the review and it turns out you know when they give books to reviewers when they assign books to reviewers it's a crapshoot, right? Yeah. You never know what you're going to get. You could yeah. get someone who's just feeling grumpy. You could get someone who's angry. You could get someone who just doesn't get it. Yeah. This woman couldn't have been like, her name is Waiki Wang. Do you know her? She's mm -hmm. an amazing writer, funny as all get out. She's the queen of quirk and quite well known. She writes a lot for the New Yorker and she just loved it. She and I had the feeling that she was thinking to herself, gee, I wish I'd had I'd written this. You yeah. know, it's like because it's the book has a huge twist in the middle. Um, and so it's hard to talk about the book without revealing the twist. Yeah. The twist is kind of stunning. Of all the people who've read it so far, one person who's a psychotherapist. <laughs> and, Saw it coming. She got it. Yeah. And and the reviewer said, you know, when the twist came. I thought, okay, Hafner must have blown it somewhere along the line. And so she went back and reread part one and said, no, I thought I'd catch her. I thought I'd catch her with a mis in a mistake. And she, she she said she didn't, Hafner didn't miss a beat. Because I you have to cover yourself because you know that people are going to read the book at least one and a half times. <laughs> it's like when I was working on it, it was like the sixth sense. Yeah. So my husband, I'd never seen it. And he sat me down to watch it. And have you seen The Sixth Sense? Oh, or, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what it is, is our psychology, when we start to see that movie, um, and Hidden Brain has done a whole episode on this. On oh, yeah. Sense, where we have this anchoring bias in our head, yeah. where we explain all this stuff away, all this weirdness. Um, like, why doesn't the wife talk? Oh, yeah. well, you know, yeah. stuff on her mind or whatever, you know, right? And yeah. so that's what people went into the boys 
thinking through the entire first half of the book is they just thought of that it was this certain way that this couple had adopted, had foster, fostering these two kids from Russia. And um, that was the story. Yeah. And then their marriage breaks up. And it's like, oh, how tragic. And then, and why is this wife, why'd she leave him? He's so sweet. Our yeah. nerdy software guy. So, <laughs> anyway. I, when I was a, when I, I was a professor for 11 years, 10 years. And one of the first things I did in like the first week or two was teach the invisible gorilla. I don't know. Oh, the, oh, in the basketball. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, I yeah. tell them, like, the thing you see is not necessarily the thing that happens. And as a journalist, right. the most important thing you can know is the thing you see may not be the thing that happened. And exactly. so you have to figure out how to triangulate everything. Such a good, yeah. I love talk, gorilla. It's yeah. so great, right? And if you talk to cops, they'll tell you the least helpful thing are eyewitness reports because everybody sees a different thing depending on where they're at the trauma that they're going through are they in it are they outside of it i'm like it's not just a do you see a thing and as a writer that's not that you employ that on purpose but like it's a nice thing to keep in the back of your head right like oh i can have people dribbling a basketball and walk a gorilla right through the middle of it right right right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so yeah. Do you do you feel like fiction is where you're living now, or are you going to be one of those weirdo writers that does both of them? I'm going to be like E.B. White. <laughs> oh, I'm hearing an echo. Do you hear it now? I do not. Okay, good. Um, yeah, who toggled, and John Hersey, they toggled. Yeah. Um, and in fact, Hersey wrote fiction before he wrote Hiroshima, um, which is interesting. And um so I still do my Times work. Um, I do a lot of obits. I do advanced obits for the sure. Times, um, mostly advanced obits. I, I'm just hoping no one dies in the next few weeks because I'm really late on a bunch of them. Um, and I, mean, I don't want them to die anyway. But <laughs> As a writer, I understand what that means. <laughs> right. And nice. They're all really nice. And so, um, uh, but, but yes, I think uh, I want to try to take on a little bit more this, this, I was thinking of another novel before this, and it got very complicated very quickly. There's a lot of science in it. And there's a lot of layers to it. And there's a long flashback. And that was just too complicated. So that's when the boys fell into my lap. And uh -huh. I thought, hey, clean plot line, fewer characters. And so that's what I'm, I think I'm going to go back to this to this other one just gotta figure it out is that what's on the wall behind you oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anytime yeah. i see that yeah i'm like anytime i see note yeah. cards on the wall i'm like well there's another book happening yeah and that's been there for like six years because i'm still determined to do it yeah i just i'm but i'm thinking i'm looking at it and i'm thinking you know that's gotta go and that's gotta go and yeah, yeah i know it's yeah. one of the most common backgrounds in the in the really? podcast is that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. And my clothesline, I bet they don't have a clothesline. No, that's that's very like I would say that's very country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I recognize that. Like there's clothespins and shit. That's from a different era. 
yeah. Well, they should be wooden. They should yeah, be a hundred percent. And there should be yeah. some kind of something hanging from it, like close in between the note cards. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. Well, listen, Katie, it has been delightful to talk to you. Um, I'm, I have been a big fan for a really long time. Uh, and I'm, I got the book. I'm super, I never read the books until after I interview people. Got it. Because that's the thing that excites me is like, okay, now I sort of have this thing in my head. Oh, yeah. I'm and, dying to know what you think. And I'm so glad I didn't tell you the twist. Yeah. I mean, like that ruined it for everybody. Like it's okay to ruin the sixth sense. Cause that's 25 years old. <laughs> yeah. Not the book that's just out. Um, it's been delightful to talk to you and catch up. And I'm really excited to read this and see what you got, what you do next. Oh, thank you, Brad. That was fun. There you have it. That was Katie Hafner. Her book, The Boys, is out right now. I am so grateful for her coming on the show, and it was so much fun. I was giddy before it happened. I was giddy while it happened. I was giddy after it happened. I hope you enjoyed her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. The book, like I said, has been getting all kind of great reviews. I got it here. I'm getting ready to start it. I'm very excited to do that. She's just so fun. And how rare to get a chance to talk to somebody who had an impact on your life um, and learn about them, right? Like it wasn't like the email. It wasn't the fanboy email that I sent to her publicist. Like it was, uh, you know, an hour of getting to hear the story of somebody who had a big impact. So uh, I hope that was enjoyable for you and not too much of uh, me doing the Chris Farley impersonation from Saturday Night Live. Before we get out of here, a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard today, do us the two favors I talked about at the top of the show. Leave us a review, either at Apple Podcasts or over at the Facebook page. Tell your friends about us. Don't forget, Solid Listen Podcast Network. We got 12 programs, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. You can support us on Patreon by heading over to the Solid Listen Network website or the Writer's Jam website. Either one will get you to the Patreon. And don't forget, the jam comes out every Wednesday and after party and jam sessions are here as well. So get yourself subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts and we will just show up in your ear holes. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Till the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.